The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here are your five at five. We're watching a turning tide on Wall Street as one forgotten part of the market finds a second wind with some impressive gains as we launch into the month of June. That is not injecting any sunshine into the forecast from Double Line's Jeffrey Gunlock. He's doubling down on his grim outlook for the U.S. economy. In China, the big bank goodwill tour continues as city's Jane Fraser heads to Beijing in an effort to cool recent tensions. Plus, fans and sponsors still digesting a shocking merger between the PGA and Saudi-backed live golf tours. And later, tracking the SEC crypto crackdown and why Binance's troubles Maybe just the start. This is Wednesday, June 7th, 2023, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Good morning and welcome to Worldwide Exchange. Hoping for clear skies out there today. Boy, it's been smoking. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Frank Holland this morning. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. stock futures after a mostly higher session yesterday. That saw the S&P hit its highest intraday level of the year. Futures right now, you can see, are all in the red. We've got the S&P 500 indicated down four points. The Dow Jones Industrials indicated off by 37 and the Nasdaq indicated down by 21. Also want to turn your attention to another part of the market here, the small caps in the Russell 2000. If May was all about tech, June may be all about domestics. The index is already up 6%, just four trading days into the month. You can see it's up 2.5% here. And in energy, oil snapping a three-day win streak yesterday morning. But WTI is up uh, about 0.15%. Brent is up about the same, and that gas up half a percentage point. A new warning out from Jeffrey Gunlock speaking during a double-line capital investor event saying uh, that it looks increasingly likely the U.S. will tip into a recession. Gunlock points to the U.S. leading the index of 10 economic indicators from the conference board and says it looks, quote, absolutely full-on recessionary. His words. That call is a stark difference from Goldman Sachs' updated call yesterday, showing chances that the economy can avoid a recession are actually higher now that the banking crisis has largely passed. Let's bring in Skylar Montgomery Koning, the director of macro strategy at T.S. Lombard. It's good to see you today, Skylar. I just, yes or no, you think Gunlock's right, or do you think that it might be a, a sunnier outlook than he's predicting? I mean, I think it's a very interesting environment because we have data sending very, very mixed signals. So economic data is declining very rapidly. I don't think that's hard to argue with, but it's from very high levels. So you have something for both the bulls and the bears. Um, and so, you know, you've got this most recent non-farm payrolls report that is case in point kind of in terms of the headline number was very strong. But, you know, unemployment's ticking up. And then earlier this week, we also had the ISM numbers, which were more recessionary. And so there's kind of something for both the bulls and bears. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that we aren't in a normal business cycle. 
we still have COVID distortions, we have a war in Ukraine, and this misbalance between demand for goods and services that's still correcting. So there's a lot of noise. And, and what's more is that, you know, this high inflation regime, high inflation regimes tend to be more volatile. And our view is that the U.S. economy lost momentum in the fourth quarter of 2022, and it will slow further into 2023. Manufacturing is already clearly in trouble and has been for some time, but services are also slowing. And, and that was what the ISM was also pointing to. And we expect a mild recession in 2023, so not extremely deep. Um, and we forecast a contraction of just 0.6% in real activity from peak to trough. And the reason we think it'll be mild is because we've not had a true credit cycle over the yeah. past few years. Rather, we've had an as- asset cycle. And that means there aren't large credit imbalances to correct. But it's more worrying for the average person because you will have an increase in unemployment to 5.5% yeah. by the Sky- end of 2023. Skylar, I'm wondering, you're suggesting a uh, cautious stance, but not an especially defensive one. Can you be specific about how you walk that fine line? Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting because I think asset markets are pricing growth and recession worries to very different degrees. So commodities definitely show the highest level of concern. Equities have been remarkably resilient, being the asset class closest to pricing a soft landing. But I think it's in part justified because we have this kind of balance between slowing earnings as well as contracting margins that are getting more worry, worrying as well as, you know, there's actually more liquidity in the system than previously in terms of if you look at the six-month basis um, of the liquidity impulse. So if you aggregate the PBOC, the ECB, VOJ, as well as the Fed, um, and their balance sheets, and you look at that on a six-month rolling basis, that's actually turned more positive. It's largely led by the PBOC and the BOJ, um, but the Fed turned more positive in March as well in the SVB crisis. So we've kind of got these counterbalancing forces of liquidity as well as this expectation of a Fed pivot on one side and slowing earnings on the other. So generally, we're neutral on equities. Where I think you have more of an advantage is fixed income. Because you have that higher yield this cycle, it means that you've got a bit of an income buffer, even if you think rates are going higher than they currently are in terms of terminal. Skylar Montgomery Koning, thank you so much for joining us. A lot of data packed into one conversation. We appreciate that. We have a lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word investors need to know today. But first, City's Jane Fraser joins the big bank goodwill tour in China as Beijing, D.C. tensions continue to simmer. And speaking of China, a huge economic disappointment overnight and new signs of the country's post-COVID recovery may be coming off the rails. And later, why the Fed is playing zero part in the current AI euphoria despite its efforts to cool risky investor appetites. We have a busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Wall Street is working to dial back the heat 
trying to calm the tension between D.C. and Beijing. Citigroup CEO Jane Fraser is visiting the world's second largest economy and meeting with its top financial regulator and deputy central bank governor. Fraser expressed confidence in China's economic and financial development, and she's vowing to keep expanding cities' onshore operations in the country. Her visit follows similar ones in recent days from the likes of Elon Musk and Jamie Dimon. The latter caught up with reporters yesterday on Capitol Hill after meeting with House Democrats and giving us a fresh take on the current situation between U.S. and China. America's in very good shape. They are not a 10-foot giant. We have $75,000 GDP. They have 15. We made some mistakes in the past. Let's just fix it going forward. Uh, we have the most prosperous economy the world's ever seen. We've got very good demographics, all the food, war, and energy we need. No war in North America, South America. We've got the Atlantic and the Pacific, the world's strongest military. Take a deep breath. While Secretary of State Antony Blinken is reportedly set to pick up the baton from Fraser and travel to China this month, Blinken had a trip to China scheduled in February. It was canceled in response to that suspected Chinese spy balloon flight. In China, we're seeing new signs that its post-COVID recovery just might be coming off the rails. Overnight, the country reported its exports contracted far more than expected last month, down 7.5 percent year over year. Economists were looking for a decline of 0.4 percent. Investors waiting on key inflation data tomorrow. But still, the markets are taking the news in stride. The Hang Seng Index and the Shanghai Composite closing in the green. You've got the Hang Seng up eight-tenths of a percent. Let's talk more about this with Vivian Lynn Thurston, partner and portfolio manager for William Blair's Emerging Markets and China Growth Strategies. Vivian, good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. How do you interpret the exports falling so dramatically? But I should mention at the same time that imports fell, uh, came in at 4.5 percent. That was better than the 8, point, uh, 8 percentage point decline that people had anticipated here. So you have kind of a, a better than, a worse than story with exports and imports. Yeah. So the overall trend of macro data has been very much underwhelming uh, since the reopening. So the lower than expected export uh, performance, which is bigger than expected decline, and I think consensus expecting about low single-digit decline, this definitely shows that China macro is facing some sequential uh, softness. And this will be continue to be challenging in the coming months, especially the comps are getting hotter uh, for different macro segments. So, for example, manufacturing has shown already deceleration uh, in May. PMI was dip below 50 level, which is 48.8, and continue to soft in the most recent months. And retail sales also continue to decelerate, uh, although it's still up about 12.5% on a very easy comps. And property sales also continue to be very weak. So overall, China reopening has shown pretty um, underwhelming and soft uh, kind of performance so far. What's behind it? The biggest reason behind this uh, is the consumer and business confidence. So Chinese uh, consumer and the business community, actually, the confidence hit about 20-year low uh, towards the end of last year. And that was a result of a more than three years of lockdowns. And this will take some time to repair. And the second reason is that the mass and the lower income population still face lower income situation. Their income still not back to pre-COVID level. And youth employment still become very uh, challenging. 
the unemployment rate among the youth generation a population actually hit record high, uh, about 20% right now. So th those factors really all contribute to this pretty anemic uh, kind of reopening path as we have seen in China. And, and yet at the same time, we're seeing, Vivian, these pockets of really stellar performance. For instance, I cover uh, gambling and Macau gross gaming revenue numbers are soaring at this point. And what we've heard from the companies on their earnings calls is that their very high-end retail, the margins are just busting at the seams. They've improved dramatically. When you're positioning your clients for this post-COVID reopening in, in China, are there certain areas that you think, yes, that's where you want to be right now, given the uncertainty in the broader economy? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, international travel definitely is the bright spot. And after three and a half years lockdown, Chinese tourists start to able to travel again. So that definitely is a very important theme. And this will benefit uh, not only Macau gaming industry, as you just alluded to, also global luxury industry, as Chinese tend to purchase a lot on the trip. And on the other hand, as I mentioned that, the lower income people, a mass income people still facing challenges. So we are seeing this divergence uh, among the more affluent consumers versus the mass and lower income people in China. So we'll continue to watch how this trend playing out. But absolutely, there are bright, bright spots. So for the global investors investing into those uh, Chinese travel, international travel related companies, whether global luxury, cosmetics or um, gaming companies could be a very good spot to be. Vivian Lynn Thurston, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. That's a trend that we've, by the way, seen mirrored here in the United States as well, where those gaming companies and especially Las Vegas have been way outperforming the broader consumer discretionary uh, companies and, and, and um, sectors. All right. Ahead on Worldwide Exchange, you've heard of greenwashing. Well, when it comes to the PGA Live Tour merger, whether the mega deal may be the latest example of sports washing. Plus, when it comes to market uncertainty, hear what the ultra-wealthy are thinking and what they're doing with their cash in response. It's the latest CNBC Millionaire Survey coming up on Worldwide Exchange. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back on this Wednesday morning. Stunning news from the sports world. And this morning, professional golfers, fans, and sponsors are digesting the news. The PGA Tour is merging with Saudi-backed rival Live Golf. The merger ends a bitter two-year battle for ratings, players, and revenue. The Saudi Tin Cup coup is just the latest effort to make a splash in professional sports. Joining me now is Golf Magazine and Golf.com senior writer Sean Zach. What a fun time for you to be on top of this story. But I understand that the players, which normally have uh, a hand and a say in how the business develops, were sort of blindsided by this. They were absolutely blindsided, many of them taken aback, many of them finding out about this news 
on twitter.com, which is not where you like to find out uh, business that is intimate and personal to you. I talked with a number of players and uh, they attended a meeting with PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan. And frankly, they kind of raked him across the coals a little bit. A number of players called him a hypocrite. Some players stood up and called for his job. There was uh, an extended group of players that stayed afterward, after the meeting with Jay Monahan, kind of held their own little meeting to say, how do we want to move forward with this? How do the players want to run this organization that is allegedly a player-run tour? Um, I don't know what, what came of that extra meeting. All I know is that there will be more discussions today between Monahan and the players. He thinks it's a win. It's his job to tell them why it's going to be a win. You know, it's interesting for a CNBC audience, I think, that this is really going to be a commercial venture. This is going to be a business opportunity. And in ways that we may not have seen before, um, uh, opportunities for the sponsors and investors to have a, um, a copacetic relationship. Can you give me a sense of what you're learning right off the top about what the sponsors think about this and, and how this might affect for instance, contracts with these players who have, they had taken a stand, they'd chosen to be loyal. Those who stayed with the PGA may be looking at what they gave up by not going to live and really uh, regretting that now. Well, exactly 12 months ago, Live Golf launched. It launched in the UK, near London. And that week was a week of unease. And the 12 months that followed, basically that continued. Uh, companies and brands that are used to sponsoring golfers, used to putting a patch on their shoulder or on their chest or on the brim of their hat. Like those brands weren't quite sure what to do with players that had committed to live golf, players that had committed to this Saudi investment. And sometimes that included not including them in promotional materials, not including them in the banners of their websites. You know, I'm talking club companies. There are athletic apparel companies such as Adidas that cut ties with Dustin Johnson, one of the best players in the world who took over $100 million of Saudi investment. They cut ties with Sergio Garcia, a player who had repped that brand for over 20 years. Those are kind of final decisions, I believe. Uh, that said, there are other brands that kind of just stayed away from making rash decisions. They stayed quiet. And now that next year, live golfers will perceivably be on the PGA Tour once again. I think a lot of those discussions will start up again. And I think a lot of these original contracts might just continue. And we won't really talk about that weird year that was 2022 into 2023. You got you got to wonder whether, you know, once you have 9-11 families and they're they're so angry, they're just furious about this coming out and taking a stand against it how sponsors are going to feel about that. We wait and we watch. Sean, it's good of you to join us this morning and talk a little bit about it. I want to bring in my colleague, Robert Frank, just right away. Robert, you cover a lot of sporting events where there are sponsorships. And, and I'm just curious what your reaction is to this. What do you anticipate you're going to see? Yeah, it's so early, Contessa. I mean, there's just so much money involved. Golf, as you know, has a very affluent clientele, very well-educated, well-read clientele. And I think it's going to be really interesting for them to navigate the politics of this. But at the end of the day, Contessa, as you know, sports is an entertainment business with emphasis on business. And, you know, commercially, this looks like it's going to be 
a growing league and a growing business. You know, that it's so interesting because, Sean, when we're talking about what the Saudi-backed uh, Live Golf gets out of it, what do the Saudis get out of it? There have been accusations that their efforts to get into the Premier League um, and, and to, to sort of own soccer slash football everywhere else in the world, that, that it really is an attempt to clean up their image or what's known as sport washing. What do you make of that? Oh, that is the tune that we have certainly been listening to and hearing people sing over the last 12 months in the golf world. Uh, it's it's attacked other worlds, too. Um, it has gone through the boxing world, the F1 world. This is nothing new to pro sports, but it's certainly something that golf has been dealing with. And that is an answer for Jay Monahan. I yeah. was talking to a player yesterday and I said, hey, Jay Monahan's going to be doing press here in the next 15 minutes. Are there any unanswered questions that you would have for him? And this is a player who is living in Arizona. And he said, yeah, what about the 9-11 families that I was told to think about for the last 12 months or so and how they were supposed to impact my money and my thoughts about them? What do I think about that now? And that's just not a question that has been answered by Jay Monahan yet and PGO. The PGA Tour brass are going to be asked that not, eventually. Not that specifically, but he did. But Monahan did acknowledge that he had done an about face here. I mean, his quote, you know, before was like, "Have you ever had to apologize for being a member of the PGA Tour?" And then, and he and he acknowledged that he's had to do this big flip. Sean, thank you again. Appreciate you yeah, being contested, here. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Contested. Yeah, the, the one thing I would add to that, you know, a lot of this discussion about sports washing and about the image. I think the bigger driver here for the Saudis is economic diversification. You know, they want mm. to diversify out of an oil economy. That PIF fund is is aiming toward a trillion dollar valuation. They're now at about six hundred fifty billion dollars. They need different places to put that money. Sports is a growing area, so I think this is more about economic diversification than it is about image improvement. Thank you for that, Robert. I appreciate. I kind of threw you um, that question. I, I don't. I hope you. Don't mind that I just we are really here to talk to me about the CNBC millionaire survey, which, you know, we have higher rates. We have rumblings of the weaker economy. Are we seeing it taking a toll on people with money? Contessa, we are. um, You know, we're looking at uh, key findings from that survey and millionaire investors are betting that inflation is going to stick around for at least another two years. The CNBC millionaire survey that's where we poll people with investable assets of at least a million dollars or more. Found that 52% of them say inflation is not going to fall to that Fed target of 2% for at least two years. About a third say it's going to take at least a year. They also say that interest rates will be higher for longer. Nearly half say interest rates are headed higher by the end of the year. Only 18% of them expecting the Fed to cut rates. By the end of 2023, inflation and rates starting to take a bite out of their spending. In fact, more than a third of millionaires surveyed have cut back on restaurants due to inflation. That was surprising to me. Hmm. 18% have delayed the purchase of a car. One in four has already given less to charity due to inflation. And if inflation persists, a growing number plan to cancel their vacations. They're also borrowing less. Nearly a third say they plan to borrow less this year due to higher rates. Now, when we asked them about the threats to their wealth, inflation ranks second behind the stock market, which nearly half think is headed lower this year. 
You can read more about the survey findings, including who they support in the presidential election for 2024 at cnbc.com slash millionaire survey. Now, that is a tease. You know, a million dollars doesn't buy what it used to. So a millionaire survey just it's no it's no surprise here, Robert, that everybody's feeling the pinch. Thank you for joining us. Getting up early. Straight ahead, why the Fed is playing zero part in the current AI euphoria, despite its efforts to cool risky investor appetites. Be right back. Good Wednesday morning, everybody. Uh, It's a smoky Wednesday in New York City. Thanks to those California, not California. I'm so used to saying California wildfires, the Canada wildfires, that so much of the United States is under smoke. But here we are. We're getting it heating up in worldwide exchange. Still on deck, the S&P pushes to its highest level of the year. One beaten up part of the market is finding some fresh love in the early days of the new trading month. One sector underperforming the broader markets, consumer staples. But with pricing power boosting the bottom lines, why it's causing more headaches for the Fed in its bid to stomp out sticky inflation. The SEC's crypto crackdown ramping up with fresh action against sector giant Binance. This is Wednesday, June 7th, and this is Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Frank Holland this morning. And let's take a live look now at that hazy New York City skyline this morning. And I just mentioned the city is among a large part of the U.S. dealing with a dangerous air pollution situation as a result of smoke from the wildfires burning in Canada, not California. California is glad not to have the spotlight on this. We'll have more on this coming up. Let's pick up the half hour with a check on U.S. stock futures after the S&P 500 hit its highest level for the year and the highest close since August. Right now, you can see that we are in the red across the board. S&P 500 indicated to open down two points. Dow Jones indicated to open down 28 and the Nasdaq off by 11 and a half. The bond market and investors are continuing to try and read the economic tea leaves ahead of the Fed's next rate decision. The 10-year yield right now is 3.676%, all of the yields lower this morning. Sticking with stocks in one part of the market that's just not getting as much love, consumer staples, relatively flat year-to-date and underperforming the S&P 500 by more than 10%. A handful of consumer-facing names report this week, including J.M. Smucker, topping estimates yesterday. They had strong pricing power, especially in their food and the pet-related brands. A lot of demand there. Campbell Soup reports today uh, that's up uh, about three-quarters of a percentage point in the extended trade. What we're seeing is the resilience of consumer spending is a key focus for investors and the Fed in the face of the sector's strong pricing power and stubbornly sticky inflation. Joining me to discuss it, Jason English, Equity Research Managing Director at Goldman Sachs. Jason, great to see you this morning. Thanks for having me. That's a good to see you, too. The big headline here really seems to be that the input costs have gone down, and yet the prices are staying where they are. So a lot of these consumer staple names, they have strong margins. That's exactly right. Case in point, yesterday, Smucker reported results, gross margins gapped up 230 basis points year on year. That contrasts with 100 basis points of decline just last quarter. So the industry at large is hitting the inflection point right now, where the cost curve, to your point, has begun to moderate, yet the price increases, largely that were implemented last year, are still spilling over, carrying over this year, 
creating a nice price cost surplus that's not only padding top line, revenue growth of the business, for example, up 11%. This is a business that pre-COVID was lucky to grow low, low single digits. And then with the gross margin expansion, fueling 30% earnings growth. So from a fundamental perspective, these are really robust results we've seen from Smucker. And frankly, that's a follow-up from what we've seen from the entire sector throughout this earnings season. You know, it's interesting because Smucker reported especially strong demand in its pet segment. Petco, Chewy, they're following suit. So pets, that's clearly an area where consumer staples can continue to grow and shine. Are there other areas as well that you think the growth in this sector comes from? So Smucker did have very good results in pet. However, it came with a negative volume response. It was entirely price driven. So we think about four quarters from now, the price growth is not going to be there. We're already lapping a cost curve that's begun to taper down. Prices will follow. Price follows the cost curve always and forever. So as we think about the forward, the forward is really about who are those who are going to be able to have sustainable and durable volume or mixed driven growth. And there, we're going to see a lot of separation in the pack. We're really going to start to get dispersion the next few quarters. Our focus is on emerging market companies where there is a degree of secular growth. And by the way, the dollar, which has hurt that for years, is no longer as, as painful as it has been. And also category pockets. So in beverages, energy drinks is an example. Great secular growth. In food, snack food, salty snacks is an example. We could talk health and wellness all day long, but the consumer, if they like their junk food, they like their salty snacks. Those are a couple of examples where we would expect to see durable growth. You mentioned uh, emerging markets. We just got some data out of China today, exports, uh, which disappointed um, in terms of the falling 7.5% year on year. When we're looking at China, and I guess Asia more broadly, how much do, does that factor into where these consumer staple companies go for the next six months to a year? It depends on the individual company. If we're talking to a company like Estee Lauder, it's critical. They derive almost 40% of their product or their demand from the Chinese consumer cohort. A company like P&G, closer to eight. A company like Colgate, closer to four. So it's big enough to matter, but only for a select number of names. And um, I hadn't heard that statistic, but I would echo what we've seen in results. The recovery in China has been slower than many people would have expected. The real strength that we're seeing in emerging markets is really come out of Latin America where not only are we seeing the ongoing price inflation we've always seen out of Latin America, but the underlying consumer demand is proving to be really healthy. And that's a really big market. As you think about U.S.-centered companies, it's natural that they extend their geographical footprint south, close proximity. So many of those companies have a lot more exposure there than they do to China. Jason English, good to see you on this Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you. Let's get a check on some of the morning's top stories. And Silvana Hanau joins us with those. Silvana, good to see you. Hey, Katessa, good Wednesday morning to you. All right, well, the European Union is reportedly preparing to take fresh action against China's Huawei. According to the Financial Times, officials are weighing a mandatory ban on member states using companies that might pose a security risk in their 5G networks, including Huawei. The FT says the move stems from growing concerns by EU leaders about certain national governments dragging out, taking steps on the matter. Reddit becoming the latest tech company to trim headcount. The online forum platform is cutting 90 jobs, or that's about 5% of positions. Reddit will also slow its hiring as part of the company's restructuring efforts. And Priceline becoming the latest company to jump into the AI chatbot craze. 
the booking holdings unit announcing a new partnership with Google Cloud, tapping into its generative AI tools to allow potential travelers to communicate with a chatbot in a conversational way when making plans and receive personalized hotel bookings. Priceline CEO Brett Keller telling CNBC that AI will help customers make more thoughtful decisions on where and when to travel and also help the company's employees speed up response times, Contessa. All right, Silvana now, thank you. Got it. A developing story and the ongoing SEC crypto crackdown just 48 hours after charging Binance with securities fraud, alleging its CEO, Xiaoping Zhao, is operating a web of deception. The agency is now requesting a temporary freeze on assets linked to Binance. It says that the U.S. clients have $2.2 billion at what the agency calls significant risk. And then, of course, we saw yesterday a suit against rival exchange Coinbase alleging it violated U.S. securities law by failing to register as a broker. CNBC's Arjun Karpal joins me now from the Money 2020 Summit in Amsterdam. What a difference 24 hours make. I, I mean, the, the attendees there have had a chance here, Arjun, to sort of digest the news from Binance. And then on top of it, that we get the news on Coinbase. Yeah, look, there's a lot of caution now towards crypto companies telling us that some of their clients don't really want to go near this after what's happened. And we're looking at the future of this space. And I think I'll focus on Coinbase for, for a minute because I think it speaks to the broader industry here. What happens next with Coinbase could define what happens really broadly with the crypto industry in the U.S. And there's a few uh, things that could happen. Firstly, uh, they go to court with the SEC and, and the SEC wins. And if that happens, there could be a number of... Uh, results of that. First is that the Coinbase may have to separate parts of its business that the SEC alleges they're co-mingling, such as the exchange and market-making business, and therefore would have to register those. With the SEC second, Coinbase could face billions of dollars worth of fines because the SEC, in its claim, is seeking what it calls disgorgement of ill-gotten gains plus interest. Effectively, what that means is Coinbase would have to pay back any revenue that they got from selling these alleged unregistered securities. Analysts at Barclays say that that could total around $6 billion. But the bigger issue is, what does it mean for the crypto markets? Now, Binance and Coinbase are the two largest exchanges out there at the moment. They account for about 60% of trading volumes. If in any way this regulatory action forced them to, to reduce the amount of business they do, reduce the amount of customers, that of course could have a knock-on effect on uh, the trading volumes in the crypto market, which are already very thin because retail investors have not come back into the market. And of course, that could create further volatility to the upside and downside. I think the price action right now in Bitcoin and the broader crypto markets is interesting. They've stayed pretty stable. And I think there's two reasons for that. One, the Coinbase CEO, Brian Armstrong, in the past has argued, actually, the court battle could be good. It could help us to get clarity on what exactly the rules are in the U.S. for crypto exchanges. But secondly, I think, as I mentioned, there's not a lot of retail investors in the market. This market's being propped up by big uh, institutional investors or, or whales, as they're known. And that's why the price is staying relatively stable right now. But clearly, a lot of regulatory overhang right now of the market, Contessa, and a lot of uncertainty about its future. Arjun Karpal, thank you so much for joining us from Amsterdam. Coming up, factoring in the AI boom into the Fed strategy, Steve Leisman lays out how the fever around the white hot tech could influence the central bank's policy path forward. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get your morning call sheet. And we're checking on a few of the morning's biggest upgrades and downgrades by firms you know and stocks you probably own. J.P. Morgan is raising its price target on Netflix from $380 to $470 per share. J.P.M. predicts that Netflix's uh, password sharing crackdown has the potential to substantially add to the bottom line. And a price increase for Amazon coming from Piper Sandler, raising it from $130 to $150 per share. It points to the AI surge and strong early interest in AI offerings from AWS. Well, the investment boom in artificial intelligence is creating a modern-day gold rush of sorts. Key players are seeing their stocks rise in recent months. But it is creating something of a conundrum for Jay Powell and the Fed, looking to discourage risky behavior and speculation. Steve Leisman joins us with more. Steve, what are you seeing? Good morning, uh, Contessa. You know, it might not be well-remembered, but Netscape, remember that was the browser uh, uh, innovation? It launched its storied IPO in 1995, just a few months after the Fed had completed cranking up interest rates by 300 basis points. They hit a level north of 5%, right around, you can see there, where they are today. All that raises the question, is this a similar tech bubble and whether the impact of higher rates could have on new investment in AI? Is this a bubble the Fed should be leaning against? I talked to Justin Wolfers, an economics professor. He says, if I was Jay Powell at the Fed, I'd have a whole unit in place right now thinking about this stuff because this is potentially big stuff for the economy. Back in 1995, higher rates had little effect. The Netscape IPO launched a massive investment that would last a half decade and culminate in great technological and economic progress and one of the great investment busts of all time that the Fed had to address. Hedge fund investor Glenn Hutchins sees real potential in AI technology for companies and for investors. But when it comes to the impact of higher interest rates on AI investment, Hutchins tells me this is the third tech hype cycle after big data and crypto. Now, he says, for the moment, hype trumps higher rates. Wolfers and other economists and investors see potentially profound but confusing effects from AI. Here are some of the ones that they're talking about. There could be more demand for capital and investment. That means higher rates short term, depending upon whether these investments are really that capital intensive. Productivity would increase over time, meaning lower long-term rates, but it would take time for that effect to show up. Higher stock prices could happen, as we've seen immediately, creating a wealth effect the Fed might want to lean against. The Fed should be paying attention to the stock market, says Jason Furman, an actual tangible investment. This is part of a broader loosening of financial conditions, again, one the Fed doesn't really want to happen right now. Finally, well, as part of the reporting, I asked Bing's chat uh, software what effect AI would have on interest rates and what effect interest rates would have on AI. It said rates could go up as a result, they could go down, or there could be mixed <laughs> effects. When I asked AI which answer it liked best, it said the mixed answer, spoken like a true economist. Now, Contessa, what's interesting here is I, I asked this question of, of chat at the end of the reporting process. I talked to about a dozen people, and it came back with all the same arguments these dozen people had given me. However, the reason I use Bing, by the way, I don't mean this to be an advertisement, because they footnote it. So the way it got its answers was from a bunch of stories and articles and opinion pieces and other things that had been written from it. So if we don't do the story, then AI is not there to give us the answer. You know, uh, so basically you're telling me that artificial intelligence is basing its answer on probably the reporting that you've done. 
Well, not you're right. Some other folks had written some interesting pieces on this, a bunch of economists and other things like that. So if you, you know, I guess the, the old thing is garbage in, garbage out. Whatever that, whatever's there, they don't have the answer unless we do the reporting and start asking the questions. So it's a very strange kind of, I don't know, chicken or egg thing. On the one hand, yeah, what do you need me for? What do you need the economists right. for if the AI comes up with this stuff already? You're but already- the economists and the reporters are the ones who did the work that AI spit back. Steve's already doing the groundwork to preserve his job in the face of the robots taking over. I I, I do want to get back to the Fed part of this, Steve. What's your sense that that Jay Powell, that the Fed is what, you know, is concerned about the speculation around AI? You know, I think they're watching it. I don't know that it's at a level now that reaches their particular thing with the other problems they have right now. Inflation is the proximate uh, 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 concern and risk right now that they're taking care of. They're watching the economy and recession. But this is something that, you know, Contessa, if this is as big as the proponents of it believe it to be, Mm -hmm. it is going to be a major economic factor. And the big issue, as Paul McCulley told me, I didn't quote him in the piece, he said, you know, remember the old lean or clean? And the issue is this. Do you lean against a bubble like this at interest rates or do you let it play out? and just clean up afterwards. That was Alan Greenspan's idea when he watched the tech bubble. He said, I don't know what a bubble is. I'm not sure how to handle it. But what I can do is if it bursts, come in later. Hmm. Lean or clean. Steve Leisman, thank you. Ahead, the one word every investor needs to know today. Plus, RBC Capital's Amy Wu Silverman lays out the signals she's seeing within the options market and how that might be fueling tech's dominant run this year. We're back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange and your WEX wrap-up. Six stories before the opening bell this Wednesday. Diageo announcing longtime boss Ivan Menezes has passed away at age 63 following a brief illness. The news comes after the company named an interim CEO while Menezes received treatment earlier this week. China's exports plunged by 7.5% in May far more than the fractional decline year-on-year that was expected due to seasonality and changes in export prices. Tesla Model 3 sedans now qualify for $7,500 in federal tax credits. That brings the total number of EV models eligible for the full tax credits to 22. Shares of Casey's General Stores falling after the company missed on Q4 earnings expectations, with revenue coming in at $56.1 million compared to $59.8 million estimate. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamin Dimon says the U.S. is pursuing the right strategy on China, focusing on national security and the business community. Citigroup CEO Jane Fraser also expressed confidence in China, vowing to continue expanding onshore operations in that country, even as she visits there. And New York City's air pollution topped the list of the world's worst as smoke from Canada's wildfires traveled to the northeast and really all across the eastern half of the United States, prompting air quality alerts for tens of millions of people as far south as the Carolinas and as far west as Ohio. Smoggy and changing the sky to crazy colors. Back to the markets now with the S&P 500 sitting at its highest level of the year. The Nasdaq's run still going strong, but four days into the month, at least trading days, and one beaten down sector is starting to gain momentum. Small caps. The Russell 2000 outperforming all of the major indices this month to date, already up 6 percent. 
And with a Fed pause next week looking more than likely, according to the CME, could the tide be turning for some beaten down domestic names? Joining me now is Amy Wu Silverman, RBC Capital Markets and head of derivatives strategy. Talk to me first, Amy, and I appreciate you being here. Talk to me a little bit about small caps and, and why we're seeing this run early in June. Yeah, good morning. I think, look, when it comes to small caps, this is something I can tell you from many conversations with clients that folks have had the button on this trade for a while. And what's interesting is when you think about it in terms of factors, it's always, you know, small caps versus large caps or value versus growth. And what's really interesting about the narrative in the market right now is I think we really could have a situation where you still have mega cap tech rallying, but also small caps, because there's sort of this AI secular story going on in the mega cap techs that I do think will continue to keep it bid. So it's not necessarily going to be a rotation. It may just be one is much more economically driven in the small cap side, and then the other is much more driven by that secular story. So I think that'll be very interesting to play out. We are seeing so much momentum uh, for these mega tech companies right now. What do you think is going to happen as we move forward? Is, is, the, is the momentum here still strong enough for even the latecomers to take advantage? Yeah, you know, one thing when we look historically at just these cycles of momentum, one thing we do see is that momentum begets momentum. And part of what happens, obviously, is FOMO. But on a much more real scale, if you think about who has been underallocated, Contessa, to these mega cap tech stocks, it's a lot of your asset management community. And the issue is that they're sitting here now, and I think bears are doing a little bit of soul searching. If you really believe this is going to continue, then you're really starting to drag against your benchmark. And so I do think there could be more room to run as folks who are underallocated kind of sit back and say, you know, one, do I need to be getting on this train? And then two, what's the best way to do it? And we do see that in options positioning. Amy, your word of the day, de-hedging. Explain why. So the reason it's de-hedging is we actually got a lot of hedging going into the debt ceiling. And, you know, the best way I describe what happened is kind of wah-wah in terms of what we were hoping, <laughs> I think, for a map to VIX to, uh, to 2011, you know, where we saw the VIX spike to 48. It kind of stayed around 30 in 2011, which was a very fractious debt ceiling. And we didn't get that at all. You know, the right tail was very underpriced. It was pricing a quicker and easier solution in Congress. I, you know, I, I guess I agree that you can never bet that Congress will make nice, but in some ways that is what happened. So we saw a lot of hedges roll off. Also because, you know, we might be getting this Fed pause. So all these income combination is making yeah. investors de-hedge, and I don't know if we'll see the re-hedging anytime Amy, soon. thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it on this Wednesday, and that does it for me here on Worldwide Exchange this morning. I'll send you to Squawk Box next. Have a great Wednesday. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1 Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at JohnDeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.